0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Layer by Layer podcast. This is a podcast with me, Kit Clement, and... Me, Andrew Nathanson. Wow! (laughs) (laughs) There's two people on this show. (laughs) <laughs> that's twice as many people as one person and once again we didn't
1: come up with the title of the show until after the episode
0: that's right so uh we're just uh excited to see what you'll think of this episode so have fun listening uh,
1: and our subreddit you know oh the it it yeah. first episode just the title of the show you can find it
0: right yeah layer by layer subreddit it's cool ha- uh, discuss stuff there we're open to You know, hearing some of your comments for feedback and questions for future episodes.
1: And we are going to go back to the future now, because that's where we're coming from, and let you listen to the start of the episode, which we already recorded.
0: Awesome. Have fun. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Andrew and I's Unnamed Podcast. I don't know if I should say that, but...
1: (laughs) Uh, It's temporary. (laughs) It'll be the... (laughs) Okay. It's just the special introduction for the second episode,
0: (laughs) but we still don't have a name. (laughs) Hello everyone and welcome to this special introduction for Andrew and I's podcast that still doesn't have a name yet. <laughs> uh we're
1: working on it.
0: Yeah, it's a work in progress. Hopefully by the end of this show we have a name. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. You probably know what the name is already, but well, actually you 100% know what the name is already if you're listening yeah, to we, this. Yeah,
1: I don't think we can I don't think we can like retroactively change the name of it. So once we post it somewhere so i mean we better have a name by the time people listen that's right
0: but we'll see what we'll see how that goes i'm excited to figure out what the name is and if you can somehow telepathically tell us what the name is right now that'd be great so <laughs> um if you could travel thoughts through time and space um this would be a great time to use it because we're really struggling on this part
1: wait wait i'm getting something kit oh i'm getting something i'm getting a oh. th- from a listener oh it's a telepathic message it says the name of our show is uh albuquerque talk Ooh. i wonder how that happened
0: yeah i wonder too all right so what's uh what's what's up with albuquerque man
1: uh well you know i was there last weekend ah that's a lie uh i wasn't actually i'm sorry it sounds like you missed out <laughs> well something important happened there i'm sure
0: um, I mean weird al wrote a song about Albuquerque
1: oh really I haven't heard that one is that recent
0: no it's it's old it's like a 12 minute like ridiculous like story song oh <laughs> yeah it's it's worth a listen you should you should give it a shot sometime cool
1: yeah I will we'll add that into our topics for next week Okay. <laughs> we can do a frame by frame analysis or well I guess it's a song not a video huh yeah we can do a audio wave form per by waveform analysis
0: (laughs) (laughs) that would take so long it's it it is legitimately like at least a 12 minute song let me let me see (laughs) oh there actually is a music video for it oh we can
1: go frame by frame
0: (laughs) i don't actually know it's not an official one it's just some weird thing somebody made but it's actually... There's so
1: many of those. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, like you look up a song, and you're like, oh hey, it's a music video, and then it's just some thing that's like cut together with footage from movies or something.
0: Yeah. Okay, it's 11 minutes 22 seconds. Now, not, not <laughs> quite 12 minutes. Wow. Almost. Yeah.
1: Is it a is it a parody or something, or do no, you just want to make like a it's long song?
0: It's just a ridiculous, stupid long song of random bullshit <laughs> that centers around the city of Albuquerque. Wow. Yep. <laughs> Put that on the to-do list. All right. Yeah. Uh,
1: we don't have a section in our notes for, like, homework assignments yet. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> homework one, listen to Albuquerque. Should we actually get started with, like, topics that people might care about other than uh, cities in New Mexico?
1: Uh, well, before we do, we have a little bit of follow-up from last episode, which nice. I guess also also counts as things people might care about. Hopefully. Hopefully, uh, yeah. Otherwise, why are we doing it? <laughs> Do you, do you see this first one I put in here? I, I see it, um, and I'm not sure do you, know, do you know what it means? I have no clue. Do you want to read it out loud for us? <clears throat> I put the key on the table. All right. Now I'm going to read it a different way. Okay. I put the key on the table. Okay. You getting what I'm saying here? No. It's about the pronunciation of Kian Mansour's name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I see. I've, I've learned that it is indeed Keon. Okay, so we did not we did not offend any Canucks in the production of our last podcast.
1: Unless it's not, mm, uh, we still could be getting his last name wrong. I didn't ask about that.
0: <laughs> oh, well, okay. We tentatively did not offend any Canucks in the last episode, though.
1: So yeah, that, that's that's about all I had to say on that. That was the example he gave me for how to pronounce it, was I put the key on the table.
0: <laughs> nice. I, and me saying it uh in a very dramatic voice kind of uh ruined that because i don't think you would pronounce his name key on
1: <laughs> but yeah that's the that was all i had to say about that and now let's get into some talk about oregon state favorites cause that oh, yeah. happened since we last recorded
0: yeah that was a fun comp i really enjoyed that one i think we talked about that last uh pod. yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, that's why i threw it in follow-up nice um we talked about this the format you were doing for that. Mm-hmm. I think, yep, did we, or have we just talked about that before?
0: I'm pretty sure we mm-hmm. talked about it in the last pod.
1: If in case people don't remember, that was the competition you organized or delegated. I don't remember if you were actually the organizer
0: of that one. Technically, wasn't the organizer, but I did a lot of the work that. All right. <laughs> for for organization, so it really felt like I was an organizer.
1: Yeah. Uh, but that was the competition where held it held every event except for fmc right and competitors could choose what was it four they could choose four events that they wanted to do yes um, and they could only do those four
0: yes initially it was three as we had a competitor limit of 100 and we were aiming for you know for the for the given capacity the timer capacity that we had we estimated that 300 maximum scorecards was doable given that we had to do so many different events but we were a little short on registration early on so we decided well rather than have everyone do three events and just finish early and then you know give no way for people to do more things uh we just decided in advance since we were pretty confident we weren't going to get you know even above 75 that 75 times 4 equals 100 times 3 so we just upped it to four events nice yeah so so that went well Yeah, it went really well. Uh, It took a lot of planning. If you're in the Facebook group Cubing Competition Organizers, I made a long note in that Facebook group about how all the organization went. I basically copy pasted the organization part of my delegate report into that group and made a few minor edits because I did a pretty detailed write up of how the organization for that comp went there. And it was a long time. Like Jason, Keenan, and I, the two organizers Mm -hmm. who go to school at OSU, we sat down on a Discord call for about three three-ish hours to hammer out everything
1: so what, what were some of like the the diff- or what were some of the challenges that you had to face and how did they how did your solutions
0: work out one of the hard parts about doing this sort of competition is just trying to schedule people to help at all the right times, as normally mm-hmm. the status quo for events around here is that for every event you compete in, you help in another group of that event. So basically, if you do a bunch of things, you need to give back to help up, like other people do their solves, too. And this works out great, except a lot of the events, in fact, almost all of them, only had one group. because Right, right. With, you know, only picking four events, many events just had, you know, a handful of people picking them. And even if you had, like, 12 people who picked that event, that's still one group. Yeah, it was a bit of a challenge to try to figure out who was going to help when. And also, one thing that we did to try to, like, compress the schedule a bit, too, was we looked for pairs of events where nobody competed in both of those events
1: yeah you said there was a few of those huh
0: yeah so we found a few of those and we redid the schedule entirely based on you know mapping those events together so that they would go at the same time which posed some actual challenges for staffing because then depending on which pairs of events you picked you had some people who were typically able to do this sort of thing but because they were either competing in this simultaneous event or helping in the simultaneous event then you needed completely different people for the other one and that was a bit of a numbers game especially in terms of doing um multi and four or five blind because those take a long time yeah they take a long time and the people who you trust to scramble the most are doing them Mm -hmm. right so that was a bit of a challenge was like dancing around that issue um initially we didn't have four or five or multi like planned at a specific time in the schedule uh, but we found that we just waited until everyone was done registering and we found that there was one person who was in multi three and three by three, but nobody mm-hmm. was in multi and four by four. So we put three and four back to back in the schedule, had the person who was doing three by three go in the very first group and then we started multi. So basically there was enough time to hammer that whole thing out where you had everybody doing multi and it didn't matter that they were all in there because they were not doing three by three or four by four.
1: What was the most uh, popular event? Was it 3 by 3 It was, actually. That makes sense. Did you have to have multiple groups of that?
0: Yeah, we had, I think, 3. Maybe 4, but I think it was still 3. Because I think there were about, like, high 50s, maybe low 50s doing it. Maybe it was even high 40s. I can't remember exactly, but it was easily the most popular event. Which, you know, I thought it might not have been. Just given that, you know, you get to do that at just about every competition around here. Uh, (laughs) But uh, it turns out that it was still the most popular probably just because we had a lot of you know competitors that you know given four events would probably just pick the four events that they do
1: yeah i (laughs) I mean i know that at least out here and i think everywhere really a lot of competitions are just the majority of competitors just do like three by three and maybe two by two or one handed or something right so i'd imagine that even though that competition would attract a lot of people who want to do other events there's still a lot of people who are just going to see it as kind of a normal competition for them
0: right and I think that, in general, like, people typically only pick, on average, three events at a competition, at least around here, when you have, like, a mm. typical one-day, you know, seven uh, events-ish to choose from. People, on average, that from what I saw, only picked barely above three events on average. So, for the most part, like, the typical competitor is going to be at least as happy, if not more happy, with this kind of comp, because they can now pick those three or four whatever events they want to do yeah that's true But um, we got a lot of really great feedback, like in our local groups, people really wanted to see this kind of format again, they had a lot of fun with it. A lot of parents said it was fun, because we had a good number of first timers at that event, about 10 or so, so like a sixth Mm. of the competition, and a lot of the parents that were there said it was really cool to watch, you know, like feet, or it was really cool to watch, you know, long blind events, like the multiple blindfolded. I hadn't
1: even considered that it was a good way to like get new cubers and and parents like exposed to all the different events because normally there's not a good way to do that in a one day format
0: really. Right. So yeah, that's a really cool side benefit of it. Yeah, it was interesting cuz I definitely feel like that other cubers got interested in other events that they don't normally do but saw other mm-hmm. people do and I don't know, I thought that was kind of a cool side effect that I didn't necessarily think of until it actually happened but we had a lot of people who kind of just came up to the long room um and watched people do their big blind or multi-blind solves like i think we had, yeah that's always really cool yeah we had like a crowd of at least like 10 people i think at one point that i noticed at least in the middle of my multi which did not go well but
1: uh, <laughs> looking at the crowd <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> i mean the scrambles that was some of the like, I, generally you can't complain too much about multi-scrambles the 12 that i got were just consistently awful which did not help that i was pushing a new number for the first time yeah
1: so. i mean it's like how uh at keep portland quiet i got like eight out of nine parodies <laughs>
0: yeah parody doesn't bother me so much it was more that i think almost every cube had a twisted corner a flipped edge or both mm. And yeah, when I looked at like my graveyard at the end of the attempt, I think (laughs) that five or six, I think, I think six of the 12 cubes that I missed were just flipped edges and twisted corners. So if we, Mm. if we scored multi based on permuted pieces, I would have had a 10 out of 12. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I don't know. I might've flipped the wrong ones or forgotten or twisted the wrong way. I don't know. It was weird. Anyways, I'm getting a little off topic here. It was a a fun competition. (laughs) It was a great time, um, and I definitely plan on doing that format Mm -hmm. again, Um, especially now. I don't think the planning will take three hours now that we kind of know what we're up against, but it was a lot of fun, and I really want to try that again.
1: So if if you did multi was there a reason you weren't able to do fmc because those are both events that take a full hour
0: right so i think for me personally i just that fmc would have to me only been worthwhile if you could do a mean like i suppose we could have had a best of one and just tried to schedule all the FMCers at a time where they were not doing another event so i guess that's something to consider in the future that maybe we could because i think initially we were trying to do four blind five blind and multi blind as a like find time as available and bring your own judge mm, okay that i think was like the original plan but we saw enough openings w- with the registration that we just decided to have a scheduled time because it's more efficient that way and we don't have to have people depend on trying to find other helpful people so i I, it was just better that way so you know now seeing how the registration totals typically end up you know maybe now we can actually anticipate being able to find an hour to do FMC.
1: Yeah, and even if there's like a competitor who can't do it, then you can also maybe like schedule them to compete in whatever event they have overlapping with it at a different time.
0: True, yeah, so...
1: Might, I don't know, that might, might make it weird with like having to gen new scrambles or something. But. Right,
0: I just, for me personally, I don't think that I would bother picking FMC if it were a best of one. Mm. so i think it was also just to me like if i'm not gonna do fmc when it's a best of if it's a best of one who else would pick this
1: well i guess there's people like me who uh only do fmc
0: yeah i mean maybe i would pick it in the end i don't know it's just i'm after i last summer i got a 22 is a best of one yeah. result yeah <laughs> I never want to go to a comp with best of one again, (laughs) just because at this point it's all disappointment. I mean, I think the I think think the only good scenarios I get, I win with like a 27. It's like, eh, you know, (laughs) a good result. I won with it. And it's not like a result that, yeah, it would have been helpful in a mean, but I'll probably get a 27 or better in in a a mean usually anyways. So I don't feel like that. I missed an opportunity. When I got that 22 at Spokane last summer, I was like, man, why are we not doing a mean right now? <laughs> yeah, I get that.
1: Yeah. So it, it just, it does seem just like for me though, like there aren't really four events that I would want to do, or I guess the four events I want to do would include FMC and the others I just basically don't care about at all.
0: Sure. Sure. Totally just take a quick break to let you know that this podcast episode is sponsored by Sarah Cook's Designs. Our logo for this podcast was designed by Sarah, and it is awesome, and she does a lot in the cubing community for kind of graphic design sort of things. She makes logos for competitions, and sells cubing-themed t-shirts in comps and online at her Etsy store, Speedcuber merch. Uh, You can find a link to that at her Instagram bio. Her Instagram is PastelCubes, and feel free to contact her if you ever need a competition logo or custom designs. Uh, She does this really awesome t-shirt with, like, your uh, name, W cid and favorite events and all this custom stuff in it it's like this circle badge t-shirt it's awesome so much custom stuff for like 30 bucks definitely definitely worth it i would definitely go check her out all right back to the pod all right well that was a long follow-up um (laughs) 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 let's uh let's move on to our uh just uh general check-in so how's how's life been andrew
1: oh it's uh it's good just being lazy and nice. not editing podcasts when i should be
0: <laughs> how about you what's going on in your life so last night i made an interesting purchase uh i have you heard of the uh geeker cube i i don't know if i've heard that name specifically tell me about it yeah it's the so the, have you ever heard of the go cube
1: yeah i think i know of that one is that the one that like cracks
0: your moves and stuff you do yes This is the Chinese version, um, which actually appears to be a better-made cube. Like, it actually looks like a speed cube. Okay. Um, But it has, like, the tracking component built into it as well. The stickers on it are god-awful, though. It looks like it has, like, (laughs) mint, pink, and purple on it or something like that. (laughs) So I'm probably going to... Assuming they're actually stickers, they appear to be. I'll replace those. But I don't know. Or maybe it'll line up with the app, though, so I'm not sure if I should. So... I don't know mm. anyway I bought that last night off of AliExpress which is the first time I've bought off that website I am in general not um an impatient 14 uh, year old that needs all of their cubes or I guess not impatient I'm not a cheap 14 year old that needs <laughs> all of their cubes cheap from China and can wait three years to receive them
1: yeah impatient is the opposite of what <laughs> right well that be buying from there <laughs> there's
0: the opposite problem though too where people you know order only from things in the U S and then complain when they haven't shipped in like three hours since they made their order. Um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) there's yeah. Two sides of the coin there. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm down the middle. I can wait if need be. And well, when, when the only option is available on this, you know, weird website that ships from China, then that's what I'm going to go with. Um, I'm I'm mostly interested to see how it works as a delegate just because I feel like there's a lot of weird cheating cases. This has come up in the delegates group where you could imagine turning this cube in as like your main cube, tracking it on your Mm. phone and then literally watching the scramble on your phone. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a lot of like weird ways that when you have electronic cubes like this, they can go undetected. So, I mean, this is clearly a non-competition legal cube. But the thing is you would never know by the look of it because it looks just like a normal cube so i think i wanted to kind of get a feel for what uh the cube feels like and how it handles and what the features of it are so i know one how to recognize it if it does come up and two what it can do like what are the things that people could use about this cube to cheat
1: yeah yeah uh-huh. I, I've also I've often thought of those and how they could be used for like the opposite and like if they're used in competition you could like reconstruct a scramble or something to show how you how you got a solution or sure I don't sure. know there's like or even in FMC it could be used to show that like you didn't cheat and you came up with a solution on your own because you can be like if you, I don't mm-hmm. know if you could like somehow trace back you're like look these are the moves I did when I discovered that or right something.
0: right <laughs> um yeah at the, the same time though like it's way too scary to allow those to even be legal in yeah competition because of yeah. the fact that you can track the moves that a scrambler is doing get a peek at the scramble you know well before you start it or even you know pop it into cube explorer and put out move optimal solutions every single time you compete i don't know if you can that quickly uh, <laughs> memorize like a you know 18 or 19 move sequence you know typically but um I don't know. So that's something I did in my life recently is bought that. I'm also going to buy the Go Cube, too, even though that cube is um, blatantly obvious that it's a Go Cube because it has, like, a weird, curvy stickerless tiled design that's like really unique but i'm interested to see like what the features of these cubes are and you know just new toys to play with so other than that i have been writing a lot of final exams and doing a lot of grading this is the finals week for me
1: um yeah we're kind of recording right in the middle
0: of it yeah (laughs) we are but i don't have a final to give today which is great so i've just been sitting at home uh, in my boxers and it's great
1: <laughs> mental image for our listeners wonderful uh
0: <laughs> this is a near naked pod um yeah so t- today i have a day to kind of catch up on things which is great because uh, i needed one of those so here we are
1: just to talk about the like go cube thing a little bit more because i'm actually pretty interested in this oh sure do you know how those things work <laughs>
0: Um, remotely, I mean, so there's motion tracking sensors. I know with the uh, Geeker cube, they put motion tracking centers in the center pieces. Okay, or motion tracking uh, devices in the center pieces. And they have some sort of Bluetooth device in some part of the cube. So I imagine those those things are like work wirelessly and apparently somehow it recharges it like they're all rechargeable too and I'm not sure how exactly that works um, considering they're like all in different parts of the cube like I, I can't imagine that it's wired through the core. Yeah, I don't know the real nitty-gritty details of how they work but they, there's kind of like this expanded picture where it kind of like shows all of the pieces like blown up which you see a lot with like just mechanical cubes where you can see like all of the different features of the pieces and things like that. Um, they did one of those, but they kind of blew up the centers really big. So you could see all of the technology inside the center pieces.
1: So, so it's like, it works wirelessly like through Bluetooth or something. Yeah. It
0: has a Bluetooth connection with your phone that you can set up and it, uh, basically does a timer and knows exactly when to stop the timer because it will be solved
1: so i I wonder if there's a way to like combat this with i don't know like a lead box around scramblers or something
0: (laughs) yeah like uh, if we ever did want to allow the cube but (laughs) even then like um as soon as the cube like it leaves the scrambler box like (laughs) then reconnect to it and figure out it's yeah so well i guess if it's motion tracking it won't know where the pieces have gone mm. if it didn't if it like because you can't just connect to the cube and get its state it would have to have tracked the the movements of the pieces that's true because the center piece is the only pieces with technology in them
1: so so are they do you think all of the processing is going on on the phone like none of the like the cube itself isn't actually tracking any of the moves and then relaying it to the phone it's more like it's tracking the moves and the phone is keeping track of them
0: my guess is that it's the first one that the, the cube is just telling the moves to the phone and the phone keeps track of them
1: okay that's yeah. my
0: guess i mean that would make the most sense it would be pretty um hard to put a you know some sort of processor or computer inside a cube and make it turn well still like i don't think that that is the case but maybe it is i'll uh when I get the cube, I will play around with it and report back. I plan on uh, you know getting both of them uh, mm-hmm. to kind of get, do a sort of comparison as well as kind of uh, do the full Monty on both, see what they can each can and can't do and kind of what the implications are for cubing and potentially buy these cubes.
1: I threw that into our follow-up for later, assuming that shows up at some point. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, it might be a very long-term follow-up, but um, yeah. I'm excited <laughs> to be like...
1: Like, a couple of years later, it's like, so, uh, <laughs> do you remember this thing we talked about?
0: Yeah. Well, um, uh, the go Cube is going live on Kickstarter tomorrow morning, so I'm not sure if that means that, like, they're gonna start shipping them immediately, or if it's just, go- like, the project, it will start getting funded, and it might be months until I get that cube.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: But, you know, they teased it for such a long time, and now they're booting up the Kickstarter, which makes me feel like they're probably getting close to sending these out, so... I think it's possible that that could, you know, ship soon and I get it around the same time as the Geeker Cube. All right.
1: We'll look forward to hearing more about that. So let's move on to um, our first topic here, which is some of the world records that were set recently. Of yeah. course, by the time people listen to this, it'll probably be a bit later. Uh, and this will be a little bit of old news, but we can still talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. It was a big good good weekend for the U.S. for sure.
1: Yeah. Um, so we had the Kevin Hayes setting the 7x7 single world record. Daniel Rose Levine setting the 3x3 feet average world record and Jeff Park setting the blindfolded world record Mm -hmm. with a slower time than the time he has previously gotten in competition and had DNF'd.
0: (laughs) Good old logos. Um, So is there any particular order you want to attack these in? Well, I was present for the Kevin Hayes one.
1: All right, let's start
0: there. Yeah, so that was an interesting one. Kevin was actually almost not even going to go to this competition, but he saw that it was very under-attended and asked me kind of what the tentative plan was for any extra time we would make. And I said, well, five and seven are the only events with one round, so I suppose an extra round of each of those. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, so that enticed him to come, and we did actually get two rounds of each of those events in. Um, Did he set
1: the world record in the second round?
0: He set it in the first round, so it didn't (laughs) didn't even matter, really. Uh, But, I mean, (laughs) he was still happy for the extra chances. Yeah. So, yeah, he kind of came and signed up last minute. I wonder what would have happened, though, if he had signed up, say, a month and a half earlier. (laughs) Uh, I really do think that, you know, depending on what celebrity cubers kind of come to competitions, that that can have a drastic impact on who shows to that competition.
1: I I know that for the... uh west coast cubing tour we're planning mm-hmm. which i'm organizing one of the comps for mm-hmm. like felix semdegs and jay mcneil and max park are all going to be there and it's it so definitely quickly. drawing yeah it's drawing a lot of competitors especially because some of the competitions are like midweek like wednesdays and stuff and they're still filling up pretty quick wow yeah that's yeah
0: <laughs> impressive yeah so i got to watch that one since i was kind of scramble running which is a common position we have for events like Mm -hmm. 7x7 where running is really slow and scrambling is really intense. We just kind of have people rotating in and out of the scrambling table and then running. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) So I was watching... I was luckily uh, at a point where everybody was pushed out, so I was able to just kind of stand, you know, right by the scrambling table and kind of watch from afar. And uh, it reminded me, because I was at his Heartland World Record too the first sub two, he hit 3 by 3 stage at basically the same time on both of those solves.
1: Oh, so this one just had a much better 3 by 3 stage?
0: Well, he did five pairs at Heartland, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, at Heartland, everybody was, like... A little more attentive i think of kevin solving just because i think the the crowd there because it was a regional people were more aware of you know who was good and who could set records and i think at that comp kevin kind of heard a lot of the oh oh kind of stuff going on yeah yeah <laughs> um because when we all saw you know that he was on three by three you know like 145 146 we're like oh this is gonna be good <laughs> And I had that kind of, oh, ooh, reaction, but I don't think he heard me. And there was really nobody watching at the time, which was surprising. Usually when Kevin's solving, there's a crowd that follows him in the Mm -hmm. Northwest, um, even if it's just three by three. But um, apparently people just couldn't be bothered to watch him, which was interesting to me. But yeah, he nailed the three by three stage this time, maybe because he didn't get psyched out. Um, He said in his video that he thought it was a 201 for sure. And I guess that he didn't think he was going to be setting a record like he thought he was just going to get a good solve in. Yeah, I think those two things combined for a good three by three stage there.
1: Uh, One of the interesting things about having Max Park when he does his solves, I feel like his three by three stage is like really fast compared to his other steps for big cubes. Mm -hmm. So whenever I'm watching his solves, I find it really hard to like predict when he's going to finish because it's always like, oh, he's far away from solving it. And then all of a sudden it's just done.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like I have to th- think like you know, three by three stage for me on big cubes takes forever, but for these people, it's just
1: <laughs> they yeah. snap
0: through it real fast. So you know, yeah. <laughs> when I think at first like one forty five to three by three stage, I'm like, oh man, I couldn't world record from there. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was kind of cool to watch live. I got to yell at kids for crowding the stations <laughs> because there were people who were like literally just starting like an inspection on their solves, and mm-hmm. I was like let's please try to preserve these i really don't want to solve and re-scramble <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so i there was a reddit comment that because uh, there was an unofficial video kevin's official video cut out me yelling at children to stay back <laughs> but there was an unofficial video that got uploaded where i did get caught yelling at kids to stay you know the required distance away <laughs> And one Reddit comment was like, this guy has a really bright future working behind velvet ropes at a museum. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But I would argue that that just also equates to teaching. So <laughs> here I am. Moving on, uh, we had Daniel Rose Levine's feet world record average, who was, uh, you know, was already head and shoulders above everybody else. Now he's head, shoulders and elbows above everybody else.
1: Head, shoulders and feet.
0: i don't know i wouldn't give him a full body above everybody else but he is pretty not yet not yet he's pretty (laughs) he's pretty small maybe we can give it to him
1: (laughs) yeah i think that daniel rose levine i don't know exactly how he's doing it but somehow he's getting like really good at feet solving uh i don't i don't know if that's just because other people don't practice it enough or what but
0: have you did you see the average too like he had it on solve four
1: yeah, yeah, and then his last solve was like a thirty something. Yeah,
0: like he had a chance to absolutely break that event right now. It's still pretty broken. Like he's still very far ahead of everybody else, but yeah. um, he really had a chance to make sure that nobody was beating his records for a while.
1: So why do you think it? Why do you think it is that he can get so far ahead? I don't because it doesn't seem to me like feet is that different of an event from other events. Like mm-hmm. not a lot of people practice it, but I got to... I feel like the people who do practice it take it pretty seriously.
0: Well, so one thing that kind of baffles me about feet solving um, is U turns. I don't understand how people do U turns on feet and not lose control of the cube. Yeah. Uh, maybe magnets <laughs> are helping that now, but like I remember in 2013 when Rami Spahi got his first feet um, NAR average, he was doing U turns. And I don't know if U-turns became more consistent in the rise of magnets, but you know, not having to rotate and do like RL at BD moves all the time probably did a lot to help speed up feet solves. And you know, it's not like there's a lot of people chasing this record. So, you know, I wonder if it just took somebody to really dedicate time, get a good cube for feet that you can turn well and do U-turns on. I don't know, that's kind of my thought as to what uh, has kind of happened here. A combination of general agnosticism about the event and, you know, the rise of magnet cubes maybe making it easier to turn the U-layer.
1: I I think that it's one of the, like, I think it's a case where Daniel Rizlovine kind of, like, just started practicing feet almost, like, exclusively mm-hmm. for a while just so that he could get this record.
0: And nobody does that. I mean, who... <laughs> Who just practices yeah. feet?
1: <laughs> I guess that's true. It does sort of seem like most people who are good at feet are sort of the all-around solvers mm-hmm. um, who just want to improve their sum of ranks and stuff. Right. So, that, so I guess it it there isn't really a specialist for it until, or not not many at least. Right. Yeah. And and Daniel is also very good at just three by three in general. So I'm sure his solves are super efficient,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he knows a lot of last layer tricks and stuff. So
0: yeah, for sure that probably
1: all contributes to putting him on top.
0: Yeah, if you look at most people who are good at feet, otherwise they're not exactly stellar three x three solvers. Typically, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess Jakub Kipa is a pretty good three x three solver, but at least like the people I'm used to thinking in the U.S., I guess Rami's pretty good, but I don't like Tommy Cherry isn't like I don't think he's sub ten. Maybe he is now. Uh, oh, he is. Okay, never mind. I take that back. Uh, <laughs> but Daniel's but Daniel's like seven point five or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's very good at three x three. Ray Goslow is another one that comes to mind. Um, and I don't think he's sub ten at feet. Nope, he's or <laughs> definitely not sub ten <laughs> feet. Sub ten feet. No, but he's definitely not sub ten at three by three. He's ten point three six officially. And it's just like the when I think of a lot of people who you know get good at feet, they are the well rounders who are not necessarily the best 3x3 solvers. They're just people who are trying to, yeah, improve their Kinch ranks, sum of ranks, some sort of overall measure. And they're the ones who, for a long time, have gotten very good at the event. Yeah, I guess Daniel Rose Levine, you know, other than Rami and some others, I think he's probably one of the fastest 3x3 solvers that's put a lot of time into feet
1: and also probably just recently putting time into feet because i feel like there were a lot of people who used to do it like rami but don't practice it as much anymore as they've gotten better at other things or just life has gotten in the way or they've gotten older or whatever right right so maybe being fast at three by three practicing feet and having the newer hardware is all contributed
0: yeah for sure totally All right, I think I'm done talking about feet. I don't know about you, but... um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The third world record that happened in the U.S., uh, the U.S. trifecta of the weekend, was uh, Jeff Park's uh, 3x3 blindfolded world record. So this was not really a surprise, I don't think,
1: because we already knew Jeff Park was capable of it. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah, it was uh, 1784, I believe.
1: And that's breaking Max Hilliard's world record. Yes. Which I believe Max... Did he set it on the same scramble, or was it just at the same competition? I believe I believe it was his the other... same scramble. Yeah, so th- they had been at a competition previously, in case you don't know, where Jeff Park set the world record, but it was later DNF'd because he had a logo on his cube, uh, which is against the regulations.
0: Specifically, it was an overlay sticker. At the time, logos were not against the WC regulations, but overlay stickers due to them being, you know, recognizable. You feel, I feel... Solve. yes, yeah, um, Yes. They were illegal. And that decision led to logos in general being illegal due to it being cumbersome for delegates to check for these sorts of defects or sorts of logos on cubes. It's very hard to, you know, determine whether a logo can be felt. Um, And there was a lot of inconsistency in how this was applied across the world. We found this out at Worlds when, you know, the um, chi stickerless cubes Mm-hmm. they have like the like printed on logos some delegates said you can feel this logo mm-hmm. and it's like oh my god really <laughs> like <laughs> it just got to the point where it's like okay we might as well just ban every logo you know we could we could we could have gone two ways we could have been a little you know laissez-faire on logos like who's really going to use a logo to break a world record
1: yeah it does seem like it wouldn't be that likely to because if you're feeling for the logo it's not going to be very fast
0: <laughs> right but we also don't it, with uh, blindfold events, it's not always just about records. It's about the integrity of the results from top to bottom. And there could be very easily cases of solves where maybe you drop the cube or you're unsure if you've done an M2, if you're using M2. Then if your logo's on that M2 slice, you can very easily figure out where it is.
1: Well... And- I also think it would be especially important for multi-blind because if you drop a cube in multi-blind, it's not really as much of a time-based event. So true. So you, you actually could set a world record on a solve where you received assistance from being able to figure out the orientation of a cube based on the logo.
0: Yeah, that's very true too. But uh, yeah, again, it's not always about the world records. It's also yeah. about, yeah. um you know, just the integrity of the results from first place to last place.
1: So yeah, so Jeff Park got that other world record DNF'd and so Max Hilliard, who was at the same competition... Had his solve, became the new world record. And now Jeff Park has taken it back with a slightly faster solve that still wasn't as fast as his other solve, but yep. is good enough for the world record.
0: That's right. <laughs> so that was a interesting story. Kind of, it, you know, Max, Max Hilliard's my, uh, my local guy. Like, he, he lives in Washington, so he's pretty local for us. Comes to all of our comps with blindfolded. And, uh, you know, it, it made me sad a little bit to see his, you know, record go, but I'm sure he's definitely capable of getting it back. He's had a lot of near misses, on that record yeah
1: he's also very consistent yes Um, oh he has a ridiculous
0: success rate for someone his speed
1: yeah so i I think that there's a good
0: chance of seeing him get a mean world record soon too yeah he's had more near misses on those than the single world record but i'm at the same time i'm glad that jeff park got it again it makes me feel a little less bad about the logo situation yeah (laughs) i mean it was his fault in the end for you know not submitting a legal cube so mm-hmm. I see that too, but it does feel a little like, man, if only he had just, you know, <laughs> submitted the good cube. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's nice to, you know, see that he kind of gets the recognition he deserves and gets, you know, on the world record history books for Definitely. three blind, because I do feel like he deserves it.
1: This got me thinking about all, like, have you seen the reconstruction of his solution? Because it's pretty crazy.
0: I have not, but I saw, th- I looked at the scramble and I was like, this does not yeah. look like a world record blind it, scramble. It,
1: it was not a great scramble. It like it was one a solved edge.
0: It was like I think was it eleven seven depending on your buffer? I
1: don't remember but I think he said it was like ten algs or something, which is a lot more than right. previous world records have been. Yeah. They're usually like eight algs or something or six. I don't know. Right. He had to turn really fast and Jeff Park is I think is really strong because his memo was super fast. hmm So yeah, just looking at that, it's like the comms he uses and stuff are all really cool and how how well it flows together. yeah And that and That just got me thinking about blind comms and stuff. And because I've been, you know, I've been trying to do a little bit of blind stuff, Mm -hmm. not very successfully, because I don't have the motivation to practice it as much as I thought I was going to. Mm -hmm. But just the cool thing about blind for me is the algorithms. Like, yeah. Or the commutators, which are algorithms. But just like being able to do multiple commutative moves at the same time, like R, M prime and stuff. Yeah. That's just. It's, I don't know, it's just really fun for me to just be able to turn the cube like that.
0: Oh, totally. I mean, have you ever felt like Max's cube or Jeff's cube or any of their cubes? Yeah, yeah. They literally feel like if you poke them, they are going to disintegrate. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they kind of have to be able to flex a lot in order to accommodate the turning style for blind.
0: Right, just to switch between, you know, slice moves and all of these different triggers. You know, you, you have to do so many weird finger tricks that you just need a cube that will do those turns quickly and not like lock up on you or anything you know maybe maybe you're risking corner twists or popping that way but i don't know it's something else the kind i've like you know most people think for blind you know you want to have a nice sturdy cube that won't corner twist on you and you could feel the turns well on it Mm -hmm. and you know these world-class people are like nah throw caution to the wind when you're (laughs) here to blaze a trail we are going to turn this thing as damn fast as we can all right <laughs> like it's it's so interesting to me because i feel like that was not the m- like mental state of blind cubers you know say three years ago
1: yeah definitely i think that the the like finger tricks and stuff used in blind are sort of slowly spreading into other events Mm-hmm. or mostly three by three but like blinders are like revolutionizing all these algorithms and stuff <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's like hey i found this way to ex- execute this common zbll like one millisecond faster yeah <laughs> and stuff like that <laughs> right like using e e turns in your f2l and stuff like that and i, I feel like that's the sort of thing that's going to have to um that's going to start setting some 3x3ers three apart if they start learning it, some of the really fast people. Yeah, maybe so. The the algs are just really fast for blind stuff that people have come up with, and I, it's just such a different turning style that a lot of fast 3x3ers three haven't even experimented with it.
0: Right, like a lot of people see E and S and are just like, E, no, no, no thank you. Yeah but it really can be quite fast yeah absolutely absolutely yeah it'd be interesting to see if you know we do see a large trickle effect from blind into other three by three events
1: yeah i'm really hoping that that it does happen because it it could save well it would make solves interesting to watch if you if somebody just starts doing weird turns in the middle of it all of a
0: sudden (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's definitely true so yeah that'll be an interesting development to watch are you ready for my regulation of the day So this regulation of the day uh, comes with a story, as I don't think it's terribly interesting on its own, but I have an interesting story from our competition this past weekend. First, the regulation. It's A5B. While inspecting or solving the puzzle, the competitor must not receive assistance from anyone or any object other than the surface. So... So the story. um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... This weekend, we had a very young competitor. He's... It wasn't his first competition, but he's come to many of our competitions, and he's a real nice kid, you know, not the fastest solver in the world, but you know, has a great time, uh, gets, was really geeked about meeting like Kevin Hayes and things like Mm -hmm. that. So, you know, great little kid, part of our local community. And in the, during his inspection, he asks his judge, who was Ken Hunt, he's organized competitions before. So he's very prepared and knows regulations well enough to be Mm -hmm. a very good judge. He was doing a two by two solve. And if I recall correctly, he asked the question, what color is opposite of red in the middle of inspection? Mm. (laughs) And I was solving at the station next to him. Uh, So that's how I knew that this happened. And I couldn't hear Ken's response. So I hung around to like make sure that he didn't say orange. Um, (laughs) So, uh, but I've like, I've been thinking about it. And if, if Ken or if there was some other judge, like I imagine like the typical judge might just respond to that question because they wouldn't think too, too much about it. It's just, they hear a question, they answer it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and i thought a lot about like, what would I do? Like it's, it's, it seems to me clearly a DNF. Um, if you read this regulation, like it says penalty disqualification of the, of the attempt, but at the same time, like I, could you consider this to be due to inexperience? I don't know. It's not his first competition. Like, he's done this a while, but he's definitely young and inexperienced at competitions. And, you know, based on having to ask which color's opposite red, inexperienced at the event as well, I still think I DNF it, but I was, you know, thinking to myself a little bit, you know, what would I do if the judge actually did respond to that question? Because
1: it's definitely, the the competitor does definitely gain an advantage from that information.
0: Right, because, you know, in not getting the answer, they have to look at the OLL and figure out what color is shared among all the pieces. Whereas if they know it, they can definitely just start looking for orange right away. Very clear advantage. Yeah, it's just to me, it was a matter of like, does this, do we consider that as inexperience? And I lean no. I feel like if it was, you know, if this is your third competition, you know, you should know the rules by now to some extent. And also, mm-hmm. you know, asking a judge for a question that helps you solve is like, you know, clearly, you know, like, how could you not construe that as like trying to cheat? You know, if not, if it, you know, it's a young kid, so it's very clear it was done in kind of like an innocent way. Yeah, like it's not like he was really being malicious about it, but
1: of course not. No, yeah.
0: but it was interesting to i don't know to think about that case i've never had to consider that sort of uh situations i don't think many competitors would ask their judge for assistance in their solves
1: so if it were if you did judge it as an experience then it would be an extra scramble right yes do you think there is like do you think there should be like a hard limit set on that sort of like if it's a competitor's first competition then you can consider it an experience well you know but otherwise no
0: (laughs) What if, what if they've been to, you know, 10 competitions and this is their first time competing in clock?
1: Ah, uh, right.
0: I mean, you could do it where it's like their first competition or first time competing in a given event. But then, you know, that, cha- that change changes based on the regulation because, you know, if it's clock and they don't understand how inspection time works, they should have clearly learned that from other events. But if it's clock and they didn't realize they, you know, had to have the clock standing up when they started, that's very specific to that event and you could you know consider using a7g on that to give the extra due to inexperience so i think there's a reason we have it explicitly vague on what inexperience is because um it's not necessarily always their first competition that could cause those sorts of issues it's hard to come up with what is considered inexperience because i mean what if somebody hasn't competed in six years and like a very basic regulation that we all know now but like Oh, yeah. Six years ago, you could sign for all of your solves in advance. Right. And be A-OK. Now that means you DNS'd all of those solves. And in 2014, we actually had a competitor, 2014 or 2015, who hadn't competed in a few years and did that. And there's no other course of action. Like, there's no, back then, there was no A7G. And there was no kind of like at the discretion of delegate or anything like that. We just mm-hmm. had to DNS all those solves.
1: What, is, what do you think of, in general, like having things at the discretion of the delegate? Because I've seen people who have really pushed back on that and said, like, we have the regulations that these judgment calls don't have to be made. What, right. do, what do you think of that?
0: Every time you put at the discretion of the delegate in the regulations, you're making competitions less consistent around the world. Yeah. That's my main opinion on it. I think there's some cases where you have to have some amount of discretion. Um, like, we can't write rules to cover every case every time so the delegate doesn't have to use their discretion. If we did, we would have a Dead Sea Scrolls of Regulations. That's just not feasible. So we have to have some amount of discretion, but I think that whenever you can avoid injecting delegate discretion into a decision, just like in the Logo case where there was all these different interpretations of what was a logo that could be recognized by feel as soon as you put more discretion into the regulations you have more inconsistency across the world
1: because this ties into another topic we have on here it's a bit further down our list yeah of video evidence Mm, um yes because this was something that came up fairly recently with max park's six by six world record mean Mm mm-hmm Where from the video of his solves, it was clear that he touched his camera, his GoPro during inspection. And I was wondering what you thought of that, because that was a case where I felt like it was very clear that he didn't receive any assistance from it. And if he hadn't ever posted that video, it wouldn't have ever been DNF'd. Right. So it sort of, it sort of seems to discourage competitors from posting these videos.
0: Yeah. At the same time though, I don't think that any world record holder is never going to just not post a video because there's so much to gain in sponsorship and like views and all those sorts of things from posting it. Like, you know, within the era of, you know, cube store sponsorships these days, you know, there's too much to gain from posting a world record video that I don't think that you'd ever see, you know, someone intentionally not releasing a world record video. I'm sure, you know, sure, Max Park could have said like, oh yeah, the the recording got corrupted on this one or something. And, you know, they could have still uploaded the single and two solves of the meme and just said Mm -hmm. like, oh, this solve got, you know, corrupted, which...
1: Or even just cut out the inspection part or something. (laughs)
0: Right, yeah, that too. Yeah, it's definitely tricky. At the same time, though, that regulation, I think, uh, like there's not really a very practical advantage that you can come up with. And so maybe it does need to be reconsidered. But I do understand the caution that was put into the regulations to have that there because technology's scary. Like we were talking about this with like yeah. the Geeker cubes, <laughs> like having any form of technology at your table is a tough thing to allow because I, I was on the regulations when we kind of rewrote rules for cameras because gopros were starting to be more common mm-hmm. and we were like mm, we kind of want to allow these but you know you're technically touching an electronic device when you do yeah that. yeah so we had to we were like we need to rethink how these regulations work so that we can allow people to do the things that we want them to be able to do for you know personal enjoyment and sharing their solves and things like that uh, but we also don't want this to be abused so when we encoded those regulations we wanted to just on the safe side, be sure that, you know, no avenue of cheating was available. And it was right. just so that people could record their own solves. And, you know, when we saw, like, the no interacting with camera regulation, we were like, well, let's be sure, you know, that we don't have anybody, like, communicating through an electronic device or anything like that. And. You know if they really are just recording their solves this is an easy regulation to avoid i think that was like one of our main justifications in having it was just that mm-hmm. you know you can very easily not touch your camera during inspection or during the salt. Mm-hmm. there's no reason you should need to other than if it like falls over or something and if that happens then you know you just set it up better next time i don't know <laughs>
1: I I I think I've had a camera fall over during an attempt
0: before. Yeah, it's definitely happened to me too.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I might have even touched one at some point. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, if if it happened, I don't think I've ever posted the video of it. So
0: <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. I um, um I think that it's happened to me, and usually I kind of like nudge the judge to fix it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. If if like I really want it fixed, but usually I just kind of leave it be. Or sometimes the judge just does it for me.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember because I've I always rec- I've record a lot of my solves with like a big heavy camera. And I feel like there might have been one time where it, like, fell over or something, and then I, like, instinctively reached out to grab it just because it's, like, a big, expensive camera.
0: <laughs> totally, yeah. Uh,
1: I don't remember for sure, though, but mm-hmm. but that sort of leads into—I feel like the regulation's kind of already inconsistently enforced. Yes, um, that's true. If the video evidence has to be posted in order for somebody to do something about it, mm-hmm. it has to it has to be, like, high-profile enough that somebody actually notices it.
0: Well— We did catch a guy adjusting his camera at Rose City this past weekend.
1: Did you catch it because of their video evidence? No.
0: No, the judge, the judge was alert.
1: Yeah, so that that's the part that I feel like something needs to be changed in the regulations. Because it, it feels like if you're going to catch people from the videos they post, you're only going to catch the people who are high profile. And it's it just seems inconsistent to me. So it, it feels like having something about at the delegate's discretion or something, if it's clear that breaking the regulation was unintentional and did not give the competitor an advantage, then it can be allowed to stand or something. I, I don't...
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that makes me really uncomfortable. Like, I mean, I I personally don't like that Felix's one-handed world record stands currently due to the miss scramble mm. and miss scrambles are another one of those things that for a long time we did with just dele- delegate discretion. Like did the scramble give the competitor an advantage? And it's such a gray line. Whenever you put that sort of thing in, a gray line appears. So, I am personally against any sort of Thing that just kind of adds a general discretion thing with video evidence i would much rather fix the regulations themselves so that there mm-hmm. is less inconsistencies rather than adding perceived fairness for more inconsistencies
1: then what would be the way to do that would it be just like because i feel like the way it is right now where the video evidence can be used to overturn or to dnf and solve or something if it's noticed, that's inconsistent. Yeah. And the only way I can think of to fix it that's consistent would be to just say, if somebody's breaking a regulation and there's video evidence of it, you can't use that to to change the ruling that was made at the solve. Right. And that that introduces its own problems if you can like clearly prove someone was cheating intentionally or something.
0: Right. I guess, personally, I prefer consistency for all things that we are at least aware about rather than consistency... In terms of just what is potentially uh done in the solves okay i think that's my personal preference that i would uh, it's at least more visibly fair like based on the information we have we are doing the best we can to ensure our regulations are accurate okay or are being upheld of course there's always going to be things that get missed at every competition like I can't tell you probably how many times in just one competition there are illegal timer starts that go unnoticed. So I think that that's a losing battle, personally, trying to make sure that every solve is handled in a consistent and fair manner. We would need pro judges to do that.
1: What about a system where every solve is recorded?
0: Oh, that's uh, prohibitively expensive for a lot of parts of the world. (laughs) but maybe in the
1: future at some point
0: maybe i mean that i it's definitely been proposed before i think having you know recording devices at all stations um mm-hmm. so that you know we can review things later if need be but man do you want to really you know watch if you have 10 stations you know 10 different recordings of 8 plus hour long videos of the competition to see if every single solve was upheld. I mean sure like we might be able to get the caught like the manpower to get there but I mean at least in that case you would be able to review if some like a re- review records if they don't get uploaded.
1: Yeah, that that would, that's what I was thinking. At least like then you could have at least consistency within or at least remove the ability for somebody to like realize they broke a regulation and then not upload the video. Even though like we were saying that probably wouldn't happen Mm -hmm. then it it removes all possibility of that because you can just review any kind of significant solves
0: so i mean that would help in that sense i think we're very far away from being able to ensure cameras are present at every competition but Mm -hmm. in the age of live streaming you know we could have that soon i don't know you know i already have a lot of equipment for competitions i don't know about having like 16 cameras or something crazy like that Are you coming to Mental Breakdown in, uh, t- in Tacoma? When is it? It is July 14th and 15th.
1: Um, I'm probably not going to be able to then. Aw, oh, man. Yeah, because I'm, <laughs> I'm organizing my competition on the 11th.
0: Oh, right, like um, the Cubing Tour thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Nationals coming up shortly after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and i might be teaching at a cubing summer camp well not not specifically a cubing summer camp but it's like a summer camp that wants to have a cubing thing oh, i might is, be teaching at that the next week
0: is that the one that was on the east coast though
1: no there's one uh, on the west coast oh, yeah. There is. It's, okay yeah it's like an hour away from yeah LA. there was
0: some post made on like speed solving and we got a ton of emails about it from like this group that was like around the philadelphia area or something mm. and they were looking for people and i don't know if they ever found anyone
1: yeah so there's a good chance i'm going to be doing that Uh, i'm not sure exactly how that's going to go but (laughs) it's it's do you know weston mizumoto yep uh his mom is like the person who's organizing the summer camp thing
0: oh cool
1: so she reached out to the socal cubing group
0: yeah she's 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 clearly got more connections than this group that's on the east side of the country Mm.
1: (laughs) but yeah so and they've been doing it for a while and they just needed someone for their summer thing this year so i volunteered well it's not really volunteered because it's a paid job but um cool yeah so that's that's one thing i'm gonna probably be doing that sounds like fun i think that i'm a pretty good teacher (laughs) i'm still considering what i want to teach exactly because i could just go with the whole like normal easy beginner's method thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or i could go with a more interesting beginner's method like the one i made up (laughs) um have have you seen anything i've made about that no not at all it's I, i actually think it's pretty cool and useful Hmm. Uh, it's a beginner's method that's basically entirely intuitive Except for like one algorithm or something
0: Okay Is it like just sexy moves a lot or is it
1: No, it's it's kind of like the opposite of that It's like a way of intuitively teaching beginners to think through a solve And like block build and stuff Oh, okay uh, It's it's based on hexagonal Francisco Which is based on <laughs> uh, What is that based on? Triangular Francisco
0: Yeah Which was a joke method
1: Yeah <laughs> It's based on that. And and then it's, in, in a way, it's like a worse version of Rue. So it basically is a way of solving, like, part of the first layer and then using the freedom you have from that to easily build up a lot of the second layer and then just using like m moves to insert pieces to finish up your f2l and like orient edges and stuff Hmm. and i think and i've taught it to my girlfriend Mm -hmm. that when she first learned and she seemed to grasp it pretty easily and it really set her up well to learn other things like she learned four by four super fast after it because she was already really good at block building and stuff and Hmm. when she switched to cfop she was able to pick up that really quickly it's interesting. Um, I'll
0: have to look into this more then.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's a good method to learn if you want, like, if a person wants, thinks they're going to get more into speed cubing later. It's a good way for them to learn the basics of not just how to solve it, but actually what they're doing and how to think about how they're solving it for the intuitive stuff. So I'm considering when I teach the class or the, Camp thing, maybe having like a thing where it's like, if you want to, I'll teach you this other thing too, and you can learn that if you want to try to learn more later.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm curious if that will uh, generalize well. Um, because a lot of times, like methods, like work really well for people who are, you know, maybe potentially would have found beginners easy anyways. You know, and like maybe the maybe the property of this is that it's good for people who want to go further on because it teaches them a lot of the necessary intuitions. Mm -hmm. you know it'll be interesting to see if on a large scale case if it is a generalizably well uh learned method
1: yeah yeah i haven't really had much experience with it yeah other than that but just the one time i have taught it it's Mm -hmm. worked
0: pretty well yeah because like there's a lot of In, like, academia, there's a lot of, like, pushback from, like, professors of a subject on how they think a subject should be taught versus Mm -hmm. educators and how they think a subject should be taught. Because, you know, in my math or stat professors, like, I'm most familiar with, they want to teach things... You know, from lectures that basically want their classes to be, you know, so that someone who is already probably going to get this stuff is going Mm -hmm. to get the material they need. And because they're going to be throwing like in a lecture style more information at these students, they're going to be better prepared to go into the path that they have gone into. It's like they want to prepare their students to become like, you know, their actual advisees and, you know, be able to do research with them and things like that, which like greatly biases sometimes like how they think people should be taught. Whereas, you know, educators want to kind of find the most understandable route to a workable solution, which I think like might parallel to this potentially because maybe block building isn't the most intuitive for anyone. But for the people who will get it quickly will be able to, you know, go into do more things in cubing quickly.
1: It it does sort of make me think of, like, what I've seen a lot in math classes where Mm -hmm. people will learn, like, the rote way to do things but not really learn or not really understand why it works. Right. Even with some, like, higher level concepts, like, you can get really far not really understanding why (laughs) things work. No, absolutely. I, I think that overall it makes it harder for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, that's a problem with education, not necessarily with the um, students. I think that's a lot mm-hmm. of a problem with how things get taught in that they do get taught like often the path of least resistance to get to the end product. So I guess maybe I should rephrase what I said about educators. They're not necessarily looking for the path of least resistance. Uh, They're looking for the most pedagogically powerful representations of things so that students... Could both be able to do the things in practice, but also have a deep understanding, so that when they do move forward, they are prepared for the learning the next steps.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's really important uh, in education and in Rubik's cube learning, sort of the same idea.
0: Right. So it's it's kind of like is this method that is it like pedagogically powerful and that gives people like real understanding of the things. Or is it that there's a lot of information and there needs to be some inherent sort of grasping of the concepts of block building in order to be able to do the method? And it, like will that potentially alienate some people from cubing? I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm being not sure. Really, I'm being really dramatic about this, really. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure the method's great and I'm curious to see what it is. It's just kind of a thought I've been having the
1: whole, the whole idea of it was kind of that you can use the same concept for every step of the method it's like okay so you're going to build this first thing and you're going to do that by breaking things to make a connection and then inserting it into a place and then restoring mm-hmm. and then every single step is sort of that same thing where you break something move something restore something right right and i think that's one of the most basic concepts of like intuitive methods so the whole thing was sort of based around that idea that you can just if you can understand that concept then you can apply it to each step of the method and you don't really have to memorize how to do it. You can just remember that concept.
0: Hopefully your uh, camp goes well. And I'm yeah, interested, thanks. <laughs> interested to hear how uh, if that method is you know something that your students grasp onto.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I hope I get a chance to teach some of them. All
0: right, <laughs> I'm putting that into the follow-up
1: all right that'll be for a while yeah that's like a month or two that's like a month away yeah
0: right yeah and and go cube and geeker cubes (laughs) are going to be way in the distance on follow-up too so (laughs) well i think we've been talking for uh quite a long time here have we um oh wow yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah this will be a fun one to edit for you (laughs) yeah Uh, So I don't know. I think that uh, given the length of this pod already, it's probably a good time for us to sign off.
1: I will listen to Albuquerque before we next.
0: (laughs) Nice. Alrighty. Looking forward to that. But until then, thanks everybody for, for listening and we'll see you next time. See ya.